0: I'm Susie Annetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology. In today's episode of the podcast, I'm sitting down in Sydney with Fiona Leider of Spence and Leider and her daughter, designer Marlo Leider. Thank you for joining me today on the podcast. So, Fiona, I wanted to talk to you first uh, because I believe Spencer Lighter is about to hit a quarter of a century anniversary in the industry, which is really impressive. Uh, and perhaps take a moment to look back at the beginnings of the company, and maybe talk about the inception of Spencer Lighter and and where y- you were within your career at that at that time and you know, what your inspirations and motivations and ambitions were that led to the inception of the company?
1: So um, Spencer Knight actually began in Los Angeles, interestingly enough, in terms of its ideas and thoughts. Um, I had been working as a costume designer in Los Angeles and I'd been there for six or seven years. And I had begun to really develop a very kind of... Um, sort of significant allergy to celebrity <laughs> uh, because I'd been having a fabulous time in the industry, basically working in high-end rock and roll music videos for about 10 years and partied effectively for 10 years. And it was great fun. but. Um, there comes a point in time where you just sort of can't really do that anymore. And in that process, I had been developing um, interiors as a pretty solid passion. And living in L.A., there is a huge history, as you probably know, of the sort of the modernist movement there and really active modernist uh, architects. And so I had um, really sort of... And also a really great market ethic sort of um, um, uh, antique markets, but they dealt mostly in 20th century because it was a big push, because really America is all about post-war. And so that period of design really um, took root in L.A. in particular. And so I had been scouting the Rose Bowl and various other um, wonderful markets, you know, on Sunday mornings very early for a very long time. (laughs) And touring some of the great... And as you drive around, you just see all these great modernist pieces. And so I had developed quite a passion for that visual, um, its intellect and its ethics, I think. And uh, so when I decided that I'd really had enough of sort of putting clothes on people, um, A, Marlowe became more than a thought and... um, and B, I literally came across a young gentleman who had um, just started this um, um, industrial chic concept in America, uh, finding all this beautiful metal furniture that had been started in production, I think, in the 30s as the response to the high-rises in New York and fear of fire. And so they had made metal furniture and effectively painted it to look like wood. Anyway, and so, you know, great designers like Belgetti's and all all sorts of wonderful people had turned their hand to metal furniture. And then during the war movement, of course, that was all they produced. And so there were literally warehouses full of this terrific metal furniture, and this young fellow had found it and found a way to strip all the nasty sort of army green off and things like that and clear coat these things. And I was entranced. I thought it was exactly... Well, it was, sort of, it was a really nice counterpoint to luxury. Indu- industrial is a really great thing, I think. It, it just gives a, an edge to interiors that it's all very easy to just get really, really tediously luxury, and there's just nothing in it. Mm. With um, industrial, it's just a nice addition, and there's some reality to it and some history. And so um, I literally bumped into this fella. On the streets and Marla was about nine months old and I think Morris was over there. We'd left LA at the time and gone back to Sydney mm. but we were over there because Morris was doing a job there and um, he, I just thought, you know, I think this is, this is like a sign <laughs> and so I bought a container load of his furniture, put it on the water, went back to Australia to find a shop Wow. I know, like lunacy, right? <laughs> um, but as I've said many times, there's something about working in the film industry where you really embrace the concept that you can do anything, you just need to work hard enough at it, that I thought, how hard can this be? So you bought the product first. Yeah, The really. space came later. Yeah, and, and never mind anything to do with the business side of the, the business. But... Um, it was quite it was quite uh, quite an amusing situation and then arriving here and then figuring out how to do what I had to do <laughs> that's a fantastic story can you tell us a
0: little bit more about how that kind of then um, you know I guess that's the genesis of the story but can you tell us a little bit more about how it kind of turned into what we know of now as Spencer lighter
1: I was never really pursuing I was never really pursuing the concept of um, uh, a business per se and people who know me and who know Spencer Leiter really kind of would understand that straight away it was all about the people and the, the families that I contacted but at the time when I had literally a container load of single pieces it became pretty obvious pretty fast that you weren't going to make a business out of selling one-offs of things and so I just started to investigate who may have put things of interest back into production, and the obvious one for me was um, Herman Miller. They were effectively ignoring a whole section of their of their inventory, which was the loose furniture side, and concentrating heavily on office. And so there was all this beautiful product that was not being sold in Australia for one. And so I sort of put my hand up as a very naive business person and went down that road for a while and it was great Um, and then various things happened and and Herman Miller withdrew from Australia on some level and so it it caused a very large hole in my inventory and so I went to um, to uh, Salone for the first time and was wandering around like football fields of furniture just wondering, you know, is any of this where I want to go? And I spotted this kind of colour and movement out of the corner of my eye. Sparkly objects, go there! <laughs> and um, and uh, stepped onto the Missoni home stand. And it had been basically developed in the last three years because Rosita had decided to move out of fashion, hand it to her children and move solidly into home. And I stood on this stand kind of open mouthed at the beauty of what I was looking at. And remember at that period, where twenty-five years ago, it was full-on minimalism in Australia. And like every time, you know, Dulux would release a new colour card, there'd be twenty-five new shades of white. <laughs> so anyone who knew how to deal with colour had sort of died long ago. <laughs> and here I was basically launching into color mm. And I stood on the stand, kind of open mouthed, and this Italian gentleman bemusedly was watching me and smiling. And I finally noticed him, and I wandered over and I said, "Is there anyone carrying your product in Australia?" And he shook his head. And I pointed at myself and I said, and he went, um, "If you know, you, you can't see me, but I'm raising my hands so and kind <laughs> in of going, Italian way. Yeah, like, <laughs> Of course.'" And so, you know, that's what launched me with missoni in australia and that was quite a ride for Mm. a number of reasons we did some things intuitively that hadn't been done in the world at that point because america for instance was very used to selling textiles into channels and what we ended up doing was taking the whole collection which was towels and cushions and bedding and furniture and actually sold it into design stores and into ourselves effectively mm. because pretty immediately I was, I was aware that I wasn't going to be able to um, sell enough of it out of my one showroom, which at the time, interestingly, was just down the corner, around the corner down here, where mm. Nomad uh, Restaurant is. Ah. <laughs> and um, so we, uh, we just kind of launched into wholesaling Missoni. I think it's interesting that you
0: perhaps being relatively new to the industry and despite that stood there on that stand and realised that it was something that was very different to what was currently happening in Australia. And you were obviously working on your gut or your instinct. Was that sort of a a guiding principle or a guiding light for you from then onwards that you wanted to be quite obviously very different in the market? Because, you know, there is a tendency, I think, to kind of follow trends and for things to kind of look quite similar would you say it's fair to say that you've always tried to be you know markedly different
1: I I think that's extraordinarily sort of on the money from your point of view but it was never so much a a decision as an unavoidable reality because I was always pursuing and I think that's the thing that's that that is the sort of the the point with with uh, Spencer Knighter is that it's it's driven by something else, clearly, aside from what's liable to sell. As I was saying earlier in the piece, I was not going into business to be going into business. I was going into business to be selling and handling things that I really loved, things that I appreciated, things that were actually, that were actually telling terrific stories, and by people that, um, that were passionate and, and interesting and, and you know had a right to be heard. And so, and that 's been the thing that's been extraordinary about um, the twenty five years frankly lots and lots and lots and lots of stories with wonderful people and inevitably you were also correct what I was finding what I was seeking were smaller companies with family run situations mm. and a whole lot of passion about what they were doing and so I could buy into and befriend these wonderful people and I've travelled you know, twice a year for 25 years to meet and greet and see and spend time and drink wine and you know, eat food and all of those lovely things with the people whose stories I continue to tell. That's gold. That's, that's, that's been why I think I've continued. Mm. And so it really has never been about trying to pursue what um, might be a trend or anything else. It's what they're producing what the story is about that thing mm. and telling that. So do you think then it was really, yeah, I guess as you say, the
0: story that was speaking to you more than the aesthetic of the product
1: per se? Yeah. A, a bit of both. I'm, mm. I'm a tragic Aesthetic, you know, it's like there's no way that I'm sort of selling things that like gnomes or anything like that. That's not going to work for me under <laughs> any circumstance. Um, so you know, it's a bit of both. But inevitably, the be- beauty is created by people who have really something interesting to say, mm. because otherwise they wouldn't be bothered, and they're and they're everywhere. Mm. So
0: I mean, yeah, it sounds to me. I guess from the few conversations that we've had um, and with your team, that you know there is a very strong set of values that is embodied within what you do, rather than it just being, as you say, the aesthetics and the story, but there are also a strong set of values there. And I wonder if you would agree that that, that has helped set you apart
1: in the industry. Um, I might agree, but I might f- feel a little embarrassed saying that. <laughs> but, <laughs> Too humble. <laughs> well, it's 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 possible. I I um, I'm approached fairly regularly by people to ask points of view that are not what the industry is actually saying, and I've kind of been quoted ad nauseum about sort of my attitude to the fact that we really do. I mean, we really do need to be producing things that people really want, not just produce it and they will come. We don't need any more things on the planet and so there has to be a reason why we're producing the things we're producing. and so you know there was a time when mass production was king and that's all industrial design was doing. That's completely last century from my point of view at this end, you know, at this juncture. We need to be producing things that have a reason to exist. And um, and interestingly, and slowly but surely, design education is wandering down that road. Effectively, there there was a time when industrial design was you know producing covers, endless different covers for vacuum cleaners, and you know just things that, and it's all plastic, and it's all of these things that are an anathema to the planet right now. But interestingly, Marlow has gone to a um, a school that has a completely different attitude to what design can be. And I'll let her speak to that later on. Mm. But that's that's the future from my point of view is actually having... And, and you spoke recently to Alvaro Catalan de Ocon of PET lamps and of um, Plastic Rivers. There is a new world uh, in terms of design. It's just a matter of how we um, articulate it and how we encourage it in a time when everyone is chasing three dollars fifty instead of three hundred and fifty you know how do we value design for the fact that it's the time that has taken people to produce the 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 um, the materials and what is taken from the planet to produce it all of those things are really important and we've got to stop this endless conversation about finding the cheapest product available because all that does is really abuse someone. We can't do that anymore, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's... So that ethic has been kind of dragging through... <laughs> <laughs> Spencer Lyder ever since it started because it just makes so much sense. That's... Yeah,
0: that's so well said.
1: Um, so going back
0: to how we started the conversation in that you're yeah. about to hit a quarter of a century anniversary with the company, you know, do you pause to reflect what are you thinking about, you know, on this occasion and, and perhaps if there's anything that you could tell yourself um, 25 years younger, starting the company, what lessons have you learnt that you would love to
1: have been able to tell your younger self? I don't know that I've ever been good at learning lessons and <laughs> so I'm not sure that I, that I actually have an answer for that that's effective. I, I, I don't know that I would change anything. Um, it might have been great to be better at business but I don't know how I would ever have been able to do that and still go at doing what I've done the way I've done it I just don't think that you would begin (laughs) I just it wouldn't happen so interestingly enough at 25 years there was quite a conversation about um, accession I guess and what that's going to be what does it look like in the next you know 10 years after 25 years and uh, my daughter has just graduated from um, design academy Eindhoven, and i really did not want to give her spence and lighter as a responsibility because she's a designer and deserves to be doing that for herself there is so much joy in her road ahead and so i was uh, recently approached by um, the winnings group to um, purchase spence and lighter and after a fairly significant visceral response of like going to bed for two days literally (laughs) um, you know I concluded that it actually probably was one of the better um, decisions to be made because that's a family-run business as well and I've been talking sort of a fair bit during this about family-run businesses and how important that is. They're a family-run business that, that just happens to be an extremely successful one. And uh, those kinds of values that they hold were quite close to Spence and Leider's um, uh, ethos as well. Given for them, uh, customer service is paramount, which is such a wonderful thing. Um, for us, there is that also, but there's also that driving thing of the story and the need and the importance of the quality of product and why we want things. And so, um, yeah, we, we now look forward to moving together sort of hand in hand with a whole new concept of a, of a way to, um, to sell all of the things to do with the home. And it's probably best that I leave this now to winnings to articulate that any further. But I, eh, 25 years moves into a whole new field in the relatively near future.
0: Mm. Well, that's big news. Um, I'm going to come back to the sort of more longer-term future in just a moment and perhaps now focus on the shorter term, which was Melbourne Design Week um, that has recently just finished and you had quite a large presence there. Um, Speaking of Melbourne as well, you also have a showroom opening in Fitzroy, which I'm sure will be incredibly exciting to all of your um, existing customers and also new customers. Could you tell us a little bit about why Melbourne was the choice for a second showroom and um, and uh, and you know what future plans that you might have
1: beyond that? Melbourne was an obvious we have a really large um, um, group of clients down there already and it is such a, a sort of a A wonderfully inspired city that that actually nurtures a lot of those things that Spencer Leiter is about. It was a a really a a conclusion that we had been trying to reach for a very long time. I would have loved to have opened five years ago but there's all sorts of things to do with life the universe and everything that made that impossible. Um, But it became possible in the last probably six months directly as a result interestingly of COVID and the whole pandemic response. Um, And so we've been working on it now for about eight months, interestingly enough. Um, It is not as a result of the winning situation. It's a result of what we were doing and they just happened to go, oh, yeah, what a great idea. Um, And uh, I'm really excited about it. The actual showroom is this gorgeous uh, building in Fitzroy, one off Smith Street and one down from Gertrude, so right in the heart of all of the things that are of interest in Melbourne, in my observation, Mm. in a really lovely um, original um, brick warehouse that they're so incredibly good at. And uh, actually holding hands with the wonderful girls at Armadillo & Co. So they've been able to purchase that building and they were after a, a sort of a key tenant just when I had decided that I was just going to make this step come hell or high water and so they're in, currently in um in uh coming very close to the end of their um renovation process of that gorgeous building and then we'll do our work and we should be open during May I'm hoping mm. but uh it's been, a, it's been a long haul and a quite a hard one, but a very exciting one. So hopefully Melbourne will enjoy what we're producing. It's 650 square metres of heaven, pretty much, and so here's to that. That
0: sounds great. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, I
0: have one more question before we um, involve Marlow in the conversation, who's <laughs> been sitting there patiently until now, um, and that is about process. So we sort of talked a little bit before about you know, a number of things that sets your business apart from um, whether you call them competitors or not in the industry. Um, The notion of community and family and collaboration is something that I think that continues to pop up. Um, And I wonder if you could just expand on that a little bit.
1: Well, I think collaboration is something that um, does set Spencer Nader apart because effectively I I work with the companies that we... um, Uh, distribute or show Uh, they it's a it's a fairly commonly known thing about me that I'm a relatively straight shooter and they will get the 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 information without glossing without pulling punches without all of those things and and young designers and even old designers and companies need to to have a, a sense of getting information from the coal face and so I tend to work with those companies particularly when they're young ones to actually help them develop what it is that they should be doing that we can actually sell for them um, there are a large number of examples but one of the most recent is this beautiful young com- um, couple who work out of um, Belgium who produce the most exquisite um, knitted throws and and I was basically saying to them this is terrific well done but what about the rest of the collection like where is it where are the cushions? Where are the bedspreads? Where are all of those things? And can I have four patterns rather than one? And so they were very excited that someone was A, passionate, B, selling their product really well, and then C, giving them the feedback. And so that's been an ongoing kind of wonderful situation. To do that, you have to go to the kind of oft-pieced markets in opposition to Salone to find the young designers and the people that you, um, that you are trying to nurture when they're just beginning before they've been found by someone large or gone down the wrong road or given up out of disgust who knows and so at that time Marlowe um, and I were travelling in Europe uh, basically going to Korthrik which is a, um, a Belgian trade fair Marlowe had taken a year off um, school finished school but a year before she started whatever she was going to do next and so we were travelling and we were at Quartaric looking around and it was really interesting and we'd had a great time. And then I said, what about, what about uh, Dutch Design Week? I have this, uh, this sofa that I've been looking for, which is in a vintage Carmelionda like seven years ago before the new ones were released, <laughs> just so we know. And um, I had found it in, um, in a Belgian uh, antique fair. And so basically what we did, sorry, a Belgian antique warehouse, because these people are really good at it, and so on our way to Dutch Design Week, we went via my Yonder, and walked through, you know, sort of two hectares of vintage furniture, which was wonderful fun. But I found my sofa and I'd committed to it and I'd got the leather and I was a happy girl. And off we went to Eindhoven. And we pulled into the, um, the it's so funny, do you remember that? We pulled in, We pulled into the hotel and parked and just wandered down the street and we literally happened upon the um the graduate show of the design academy eindhoven which
2: (laughs) we didn't know it was a graduate show at first no we (laughs) we didn't
1: we didn't know anything it it was one of those wonderfully serendipitous moments and we walked into this show and like four hours later came out just wide-eyed and 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 completely in love with you know, if, if this is what the future is, mm. we want it um,
2: because we would stop, we would stop and chat and hypothesise on why it was so different and interesting and and rich and relevant. So it just took us forever, forever. And then and by the end, I think it came down to the question of like, uh, who curated this? <laughs> yes. What is this? <laughs>
1: oh, it's a design it's, school it's a
2: bachelor graduation. <laughs> bachelor graduation no way yeah
1: yeah no it's really a very high quality product and great thinking and that was the thing that was about it great great thinking and so we came out and I said Marlo why don't you go there <laughs> and she looked at me yeah yeah whatever Mama, As if I said well you've got nothing to lose and so she applied and got in and over to you Marlo Well, firstly, I just need to say, I need the details of that vintage furniture warehouse
0: because that sounds divine. You do, actually. It's Moretz, and you'd like him. His name is Eust. Okay. Eust, and he's fabulous. Okay, that does sound fabulous, When I can get there next. Um, But what a great story, and good on you for applying, because obviously, Eindhoven has such a fabulous reputation. Um, So, yeah, Marlo, I want to talk to you a little bit about, I guess, the next generation. We're sort of moving forward. Um, We've already talked about succession plans, but... um, you recently showed within the Spence and Leiter space at Melbourne Design Week. Um, But I wanted to, yeah, maybe let's talk about your school experience. What was Eindhoven like Um, and just sort of being in Europe in general, how has that uh, shaped your design lens and perhaps your approach and philosophy?
2: Mm. Yeah, it's like trying to funnel down the the whole world into (laughs) a (laughs) teacup. Yeah, I mean it's amazing how much a brain can expand in a four-year period and how Eindhoven is so um, well positioned to just make young people evolve in a way and at a speed that I think we would find challenging here simply because of the people that the designers that you're being exposed to the kind of tutelage um, that they're giving is so focused on developing the individual identity of the person. And when, you know, Alvaro brought it up in, um, when you guys spoke as well, basically saying that self-production is becoming such a um, relevant kind of hinging point for young designers. And I believe that it's a really relevant point to bring up because it, I mean my brain's kind of going to all the little tidbits of the conversation that you've had as well, because the reason why people, this industrial modernism movement was about people using materials that were, you know, borrowed from new disciplines and beginning to be applied to uh, the design movement in the form of furniture. And I guess that was them trying to reflect what, the time was about, and how these new materials could reflect that. Now, I feel like, in the age we're at now, our new materials, as they are, are so difficult to grasp and are so broad, that it means that young people are trying to figure out what design means in this incredibly complex time, um, beautifully complex quite pivotal
0: as well really absolutely
2: yeah because we all that's the, the other thing that Eindhoven really reminds us from the very beginning is that like what's your context and how do you describe it to others as a way to give reason to why it exists like the, the why matters so much and, uh, That's interesting. That's kind of like, yeah.
1: Mm. And so, what's the difference from your point of view with regards to the to the teaching, if it's not industrial design and fashion design and you know X, Y, interior design, what are the courses?
2: Mm. I mean, the courses themselves don't don't are uh, irrelevant. I think it's the, it's the philosophy that they've worked really hard to. Uh, Kind of ingrained in every way that every part of the school and how it operates. The fact that um, the why is encouraged so heavily and that the students are given so much time um, and are among other peers that are so determined. The amount of motivation and drive that is just palpating its way through that school really means that you know you've got your technicians who are constantly present in the workshops who know their field so incredibly well and you're provided with all the tools to be able to do it yourself. So you don't have to be able to outsource. Everything is at your fingertips. You just have to have the uh, willingness to try and fortunately you'll have someone there who will educate you to do it. Funnily enough, the technicians are not your teachers. They are simply technicians. Your teachers are your teachers and you have a weekly meeting with them to foster a project probably just one or two throughout the entire semester. So you're really, and every time it's about pushing and taking it to the next step. So you are not given very much of a brief either. I remember one that, you know, a wonderful, wonderful um, semester with uh, Atelier NL, a Dutch duo um, who work with local materials really often. And Lonnie was my teacher, one one of the, the duos. And we went out to a farm in the the reclaimed land in the north of Holland called the Polar, where you know it used to be a flooded area, but the water had been uh, removed so that to reclaim some land for farmers after World War Two, I believe, so they were all given a bunker, all the same, and a plot of land, all the same, to farm on. Mm. And a woman is running a um called Brianna is running a kind of collective farm art project there we halved we cut down a tree that was on her property cut it into pieces ourselves took it to a sawmill locally had it cut then brought it back to atelier's church and begun drying it <laughs> <And> atelier's church <laughs> <Yeah. no problem. laughs> atelier's nl's r- renovated church in Eindhoven, a good centre place throughout Dutch Design Week also, if anyone is there again. Good tip, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, and it was basically work with the tree. You don't have to use the material. You can take imprints of it, which is what I did, and um, just any part of it. And so for the whole semester we're going to work around the idea of a tree, the materiality of a tree. You can take whatever direction you want. All you need to know is tree. It's the nice kind of broad brief that means that students can approach the topic in a way that is innately their own. And that's pretty uncommon in, in design institutions.
1: I think I would have been rendered kind of immute, like frozen with
2: that. <laughs> Choice paralysis. Yes, that's yeah,
1: right. Same. Absolutely. It's like, <laughs> oh God.
0: I agree. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm he- excited to hear, you know, what's next now that you've graduated. W- you know, what is, what is driving you, your thought processes, your ideas, um, the way that you're working? Um, I don't know that you, how comfortable you feel talking for and on behalf of your generation, but I guess if, if we are to sort of talk about the next generation of design, you know, if there is a way to sum that up, um, ideas, process, motivation, mm.
2: can yeah. you talk to that a little? Totally. I mean, I think I've already touched on how making is, is making such a significant return among young people and how yeah, that's yeah. that's yeah. A, something that I just want... Yeah, we want to clap about it. We do. Because it's,
1: it's essential.
2: It's absolutely essential. And it... Yeah.
1: Make the world make again. Where to,
2: where to start? Yeah, make the world make again. <laughs> yeah. We need to have some T-shirts, don't we? <laughs> yeah. That's um, Yeah. I think that's important. I, I think for me, there's several points that I'm incredibly passionate about and that I think will fit into my future and everybody's future in some version because community is so important. Maker spaces are incredibly important. Places that this, like the technician and the workshop at Design Academy, where your dreams can become and it was literally the banner at the front of the workshop and you know they had made a there's these big sanding discs and after a long time they have these kind of interesting patterns and they turned a clock out of this sanding disc and then above was written like workshop your dreams are reality and it was kind of like a little bit in broken english (laughs) which was perfect but it's that um ability for people to pick up Things and use their hands, they believe there's an intelligence in everybody's hands and it just needs to be tutored and activated. And, um, yeah, I think also I've already mentioned that I feel educational institutions could be doing a better job at that um, in a variety of ways. So maybe there's a way that those two can begin to merge back into a really fascinating place uh, like a location for makers to grow and i think jam factory and places like this craft academy are really good examples um mm, mm, yeah uh so it's not like we don't have those places uh there's probably just not enough of them mm. and that and there's probably also some interventions that could be made
0: i hope government leaders are listening to this oh, well absolutely <laughs> and i
1: think that um uh That's certainly a place that I see myself moving into with the benefit of time which I will have on my hands Mm. (laughs) is to be able to actually help in that direction and we as you saw at um, Melbourne Design Week uh, had a uh, thing called Futures Collective and Futures Collective is a desire that I have to actually move forward with and help foster and do situations, create situations where makers can make, because it it's doesn't seem to be something that governments are actually actively trying to mm-hmm. pursue. I mean, they're still defending the notion of copy, uh, copies being made because they think it's to do with the consumer's ability to buy things at an affordable price. I totally understand this concept of things at an affordable price, but ultimately we can't, as I said, just justify everything—stealing intellectual property, making things out of plastic, all of those things—just because we want to be able to provide things mm. for three dollars fifty. There are so and many other interesting
2: ways to to bring those prices down, like you know
1: and or recycle and or reuse and or hand down subsidizing makerspace
2: rentals on, and on. Or material rentals yeah there's so many ways that if it's about cost in its raw form there's ways that that can be managed in a way that is positive for everybody involved
0: yeah well I'm looking forward to seeing what you're doing next Fiona but I do have, I have <laughs> so one. am I actually <laughs> <laughs> Sounds very productive. I've got one last question for Marlo, and that kind of goes back again to Design Week. Um, to hear about what you showed um, in that in the Futures Collective space, maybe what you're working on now, and if there are any products that are joining the Spencer Mider portfolio that we can all look forward to seeing.
2: Hmm. Uh, yes. So, I mean, what I showed at Futures Collective, and it was such an amazing opportunity to be part of that experience from... You know both the lens of being a designer putting pieces in but also as a significant part of the organizational team through SNL Um, it was wonderful to see a place that had you know at the beginning when we kind of had the idea and got Villa Alba it was just a seed and then as the months progressed some really just amazing surprises happened that made it such an experience in the end. Um, mm. so that was beautiful to see. The pieces that were in there are um, called Remnants there, which is a big part of my work. Probably, it, I mean, I'm at that interesting point where I don't want to say forever, but I can't really imagine uh, it being. I'm so fascinated by the idea of value and how this day and age, the materials that we have are either valued disproportionately or in many cases most cases i believe undervalued and they're things like pieces that you can pick up at the scrapyard offcuts, and this idea of found objects is a little bit tired but when you start to look at remnants which is what i exhibited at, uh, at futures collective it's just all the pieces of remnant stone which is what they call offcuts or cracked pieces, small, the irregular and the imperfect pieces of stone that can't be used for a countertop or any other foreseeable commercial or residential purpose. They're just thrown away most of the time because they're a nuisance to store and stone suppliers don't want to deal with them. I begun collecting these remnant pieces and um, making custom coffee tables to basically just straddle and hold and support those stone pieces and with a lot of labour and love, refinished the stones so that, uh, again, and started to level them and nest them all together. So it's like a little um, kind of quite... ..almost char- a very characteristic nested collection of coffee tables that are called the Remnant series. Um, it's basically a catalogue that I hope to continue. What about Scraptopia? Mm. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, you know, my my friends tell me, they're like, Marla, you will not shut up about electroplating. (laughs) (laughs) It's, um, yeah, Scraptopia was what was, I guess, my debut (laughs) um, at Dutch Design Week and um, the graduate show. So when you graduate at the Design Academy, after the four-year period, you're able to be part of the design DEA, graduation show at Dutch Design Week and it's what we saw mm. when we were first captivated. Mm. Um, beautiful experience with a whole team of curators, it's a really great opportunity and it's one of the best weeks of my life there <laughs> actually. Um, but I exhibited Scraptopia there and essentially it's a um, the one, one of the projects I'm really determined to continue working on that uses scrap uh, copper in a molecular form um, using a similar version of electroplating but um, using an electromagnetic uh, electrocurrent through an acidic bath. You're able to harvest the molecules of scrap copper from electrical waste or post-demolition waste like plumbing pipes. Basically any form of, of copper, harvest it in a molecular form and, and regrow it onto a, another surface um and god i love that that sounds so wonderful it's quite it's really a magical process and it's it's something that you know already exists in industry in lots of different ways but has never been combined in quite that order and i've been told so many times that it can't be and it shouldn't be and because impurities and because of this and that and you know, but in the end, when I was exhibiting the work and talking people through which, and I exhibited a bath where I was um, electroplating my own little business cards from, um, from literally
1: in front of people, <laughs> which was cool. so <laughs> a great idea
2: <laughs> from CPU, from copper salvaged from CPU boards, and people were just so fascinated, and so was I to see them, you know, to use the pun, but electrified <laughs> like like I was about this um, really interesting process and yeah so it's but persuading industry to get on board with me is um an interesting
1: things of beauty were produced though
2: and Mm. that's the
1: interesting thing about it it's the process but also the application
2: well it shows how delicate and how a a metal that we often think of as so rigid and unforgiving and and disused and, and no one knows how metals recycled like there's so much that's just hidden behind doors because it's too uh, yucky, I guess I don't mm. know. People don't want to know out mm. of sight, out of mind. Mm. And when you can not only display the process but also reconceive how beautiful waste can be and how truly valuable it can look, which was you know the end goal, to show that it can be precious mm. Mm.
0: Well, that sounds incredible. I'm inspired, and it's it's great to kind of end on a very positive note that there are young designers, the next generation, that are looking forward. Um, and I also want to say it's also wonderful to have some more very strong female voices in the design industry, particularly in Australia. So, thank you both so much.